0: You're listening to where the world comes to talk. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This weekend, the second weekend in April, marks the 142nd anniversary of an event that continues to grip the American imagination. It's an event that historians have explored many times, yet it continues to generate new questions and new theories. It is the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and our guest today is Michael W. Kaufman, author of American Brutus, John Wilkes Booth, and the Lincoln Conspiracies. Join us for questions and answers about the death of Abraham Lincoln on Civil War Talk Radio. programming tools.
1: Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers.
0: Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few.
1: Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com.
0: That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful April afternoon in 2007 from the campus of East Carolina University, office in the Brewster Building. But speaking as always, not for East Carolina University or the North Carolina University System or anything but myself and the guest, as always. And also, as always, thanks to everyone who has donated, contributed to the show to help keep books flowing in through the office door. Those who can spare $50 for Civil War Talk Radio can receive a copy of All for the Regiment, The Army of the Ohio, 1861-1862, to 1862, a book that I wrote a few years ago, which, uh, while browsing online through a Civil War blog, I came across someone last week who said, after his incessant mentions of the book on the, the radio show, I finally went and got it. So the marketing campaign is working. And uh, we see this with a spike in Amazon where the book shoots from, Number 780,000 on the bestseller list, down to about 50,000 every time two people buy a copy. And then it quickly crawls back up to the high uh, six digits. Uh, But, uh, you know, we take it a step at a time. That's how great empires are made. And if I can uh, uh, share some happy uh, publishing news, in the uh, year to come, did Lincoln own Slaves, the book of questions and answers on Abraham Lincoln that? Uh, as many of you have helped with by sending me your questions about Lincoln, uh, is now due to come out as a Pantheon hardcover uh, as well as a paperback. So you can uh, get the fancy edition as well as the utilitarian softcover edition. Uh, Both are now uh, in the works, and I was happy to hear that this week. But enough about uh, books that aren't out yet. We're here to talk today uh, about a book that is out, and about a subject that is is out in the American imagination. It is the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. When I worked at the Lincoln Museum in Fort Wayne, Indiana, we once did a poll of visitors to ask which facet of the Lincoln story they would like to see more uh, exhibits about or uh, more information on. And uh, they range from Lincoln's early life and childhood, Lincoln the lawyer, Lincoln the politician, Lincoln the commander-in-chief, etc. And, of course, Lincoln's assassination was one category, and not to anyone's surprise on the staff, it was the assassination that won uh, quite decisively as the one aspect of the Lincoln story people could not get enough information about, always wanted to hear more about. So... We will uh, hopefully satisfy some of those questions today with our guest, Michael W. Kaufman, who is the author of American Brutus, John Wilkes Booth, and the Lincoln Conspiracies. Michael, are you there? Yes, I am. Well, thank you for being on the show today. I appreciate uh, having you on at fairly short notice, I might add, which I, I very much appreciate.
1: Oh, Glad to be here.
0: Now, uh, when when I got in touch with you about uh, seeing if you could come and and, and join us here, you mentioned something about uh, being in a television control room. Uh, Is that your day job?
1: Oh, yes, yes, yes.
0: Um, Tell me what you do.
1: Well, I'm I'm a uh, production operations manager in a uh, uh, television network that broadcasts in uh, foreign countries.
0: So, this is this like spreading the like Voice of America kind of thing? So? Well,
1: uh, I guess it's a little bit. The idea is, and, and this is all broadcast in the Middle East, the idea is to um, um, serve as a model uh, in that part of the world for what uh, journalism is like when people are free to, um, to present the news uh, in, a, in an unbiased way.
0: So that if, if there's no government supervision, we can get all the Anna and Nicole Smith news we want all the time.
1: I, I hope we're not doing much <laughs> <laughs> much along those lines. I think we're we're more or less tailored to that part of the world rather than uh, uh, rather than what uh, may interest people over here. So
0: I see. Well, that, uh, I'm very glad
1: to say that.
0: Yeah. So that that, that would be uh, if if people saw the. Some of the things we get in the 24 hour news uh, trying to fill the slow days, it might be disconcerting to say the least. But uh, so, when you're not doing that, or uh, uh, obviously you have an interest in Lincoln and the Lincoln assassination that has led you to uh, write this fine book, How, what, what's the source of your interest in, in this aspect of history?
1: well um I'm not exactly sure how it started because it's uh, it's been in my head for so long uh, as far back as I can remember the Civil War has been uh, a great interest of mine. I'd lived near Fredericksburg when I was very young and uh, it, it's just been uh, if, uh, for me anyway history has always been something interesting it's been you know uh, parks and scenic places and picnics and and things like that as opposed to memorizing dates and and so on that, that a lot of people get. So my interest in history goes back as far as I can remember. It went from Civil War uh, to more uh, personalized into Lincoln, and then when uh, President Kennedy was assassinated, uh, uh, I sort of made the leap into the Lincoln assassination because that was so fascinating, and, and the parallels that people pointed out uh, uh, just sort of grabbed my attention.
0: Well, that's uh, something one comes across periodically, the Lincoln-Kennedy coincidences, um, what do you make of that?
1: Well, it is a coincidence. It's it's, it's nothing more than that. It's um, uh, it's interesting because it does get it does get people's attention, and I'm all for anything that uh, that makes people say, "Hey, I want to know more about this." Uh, some of those things are not really true. I mean, John F. Kennedy's uh, assassin uh, was was born in 1939, but Lincoln's assassin was born in. 1838, not 39, you know, little things like that. But then again, the whole, uh, the whole coincidence uh, between the two really is sort of um, uh, a list of trivia uh, anyway. So uh, my, what, what I said um, uh, in my book, American Brutus, is that uh, one of the things people don't look at is the lincoln Caesar coincidence, which John Wilkes Booth noticed, which a lot of uh, President Lincoln's critics noticed, um uh, during the Civil War and and that booth deliberately and consciously tried to play up, because uh, in in his upbringing, uh, he thought of uh, Brutus as a hero, one of history's great heroes. And um, you know, during the Civil War, uh, people were comparing Lincoln to Caesar because there was a civil war going on, and because uh, Lincoln was um, uh, taking on rather extraordinary emergency war measures. Of course, there was a huge difference between Abraham Lincoln and Julius Caesar. I'm always uh, careful to point out to people that uh, uh, unlike Caesar, Abraham Lincoln did not have some lust for power. I mean, he wasn't doing any of this uh, for the sake of having control, for the sake of having uh, power over people and being able to say yes or no to anything, life or death even. Uh, there's There's no trace in Lincoln's writings, or in his proclamations, or in anything the inner circle said about him, that leads me to believe that that um, that Abraham Lincoln was interested in doing anything except what he felt he had to do in order to preserve the country. So it's a very very different situation, but but uh, that's not the way uh, Lincoln's critics presented it at the time.
0: No, but but as you point out, Booth thought that way, and. For him, Brutus, the, the assassin of Caesar, would be be a hero. That's also somebody he'd be familiar with through, through Shakespeare's play, obviously.
1: Well, that's right. You see, every generation of the Booth that we know of had been either thrown out of their country or jailed or, uh, or, or something for their uh, opposition to the crown. And uh, all the Booths had that same strain of political uh, uh, views. And, in fact, John Wilkes Booth's father was Junius Brutus Booth and uh you know this is something they took very seriously and then it struck a particularly um um strong chord with Booth during the civil war when people started saying hey look at this caesar uh, business because booth had not only had the family traditions and uh, and and been brought up with his classical education in which he always thought uh the way to deal with a tyrant is to kill him but he also had uh, the, the same political views reinforced by the plays he'd been performing in. He had this uh, repertoire that included uh, somewhere close to half of the plays in which um, he performed had, as a happy ending, so to speak, the death of a king. Uh, you know, Richard III was his favorite. And, um, uh, you know, in all of these plays, the, the king is the bad guy. You know, he's taking way too much power and the, the hero of the story, uh, at least to some degree. Uh, was the was the person who tried, maybe failed, but tried at least to um, uh, to strike out in the name of liberty and all that.
0: And what about the person uh, Booth was named for?
1: Well, he was named for John Wilkes, the um, uh, Lord Mayor of London, the, the person uh, uh, who was probably the biggest thorn in the side of King George III during the period of the American Revolution. Um, uh, Wilkes and Liberty was a big rallying cry over there. Uh, among the opponents of the king. And um, uh, it's been said many times that, that John Wilkes uh, was uh, America's best friend in its fight for independence. Uh, he had been arrested five times. He'd been exiled. He'd been uh, reelected uh, a number of times back to, the, um, uh, back to the parliament. So, again, you know, this is, this is a very high-profile person in John Wilkes Booth family, Always thought that they were related to him, and they were very proud of that relationship. So when um, when Booth, when John Wilkes Booth's uh, grandfather Richard Booth was allowed to name a uh, grandson, he named him after what he thought was his famous relative. I've never personally been able to make the connection, but uh, but they uh, believed they were related, and uh, the other people in the family, Algernon, and Sidney Booth, Junius Brutus Booth, they all had names like that.
0: So so everything in Booth's background points him toward, toward this idea of slaying the tyrant. This
1: is... Yeah, and you can see, in fact, uh, uh, four years before the assassination of Lincoln, you can already see things kind of shaping up uh, with the trajectory uh, of, of Lincoln and his emergency war measures and William Seward uh, are kind of urging him and, and uh, people believing it at the time, at the beginning of the war, that, in fact, Seward was the real brains behind the administration. You know, he was so much more high-profile and, and, and was perceived as so much more radical than Lincoln. And, uh, and, and you can see how the public perception and those first impressions that are so important uh, started shaping up the events of four years later and that uh, there was nothing uh, in the intervening years that, for some reason, uh, was able to change John Wilkes Booth's mind about what was going on. I tried figuring out uh, in in um, uh, determining why Booth killed Lincoln. I tried figuring out, you know, the the, the phrase that he spoke when he landed on a stage at Ford's Theater: "Sic semper tyrannis." That's always the tyrants. Uh, starting with that, I wondered whether that was very rational because I'd never heard that people called Lincoln a tyrant. Well, they did, and if you look. Uh, from one day to the next, we can trace where Booth was almost every day of the war. And you look in the newspapers during those days in those cities, as he traveled around as a very, very uh, successful actor, you can see that the, um, the way the political situation was shaping up, particularly in the border states like Maryland, which is where Booth came from, you can see how, um, how the criticism was so sharply directed at those war measures. And, uh, and in Booth's mind, he, he kept thinking again and again that, you know, this, this man has gone beyond the law. That was a common criticism. And uh, as I said, you know, Lincoln did what he felt he had to do. In 1861, uh, a mob in Baltimore attacked some Massachusetts troops as they came through the city. They had to come through Baltimore because that's the way the railroads ran, and the fact that they could impede the traffic, the flow of troops into the, the, uh, the scene of battle, so to speak, um, really made Baltimore uh, and Maryland in general uh, pivotal in the early months of the war uh, in, in, in getting together the, um, uh, the effort to put down the rebellion, as they said. Uh, and, and so it was very important that Lincoln had to do something about people Uh, in Maryland who were along that route the troops had to take
0: so you you of course suspends the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus and and otherwise cracks down there but everything you said uh, in one sense disposes with with a commonly held uh, view or once commonly held view of Booth as as the mad actor uh, as an insane or attention crazed unsuccessful actor who kills Lincoln to, to make himself famous, uh, it sounds like that's not the case at all.
1: Well, um, the more I studied Booth, the more I kind of tried to get into his head and figure out what made him tick, uh, the, the more it sounded as if, at least on the surface, um, he had reason to believe what he did, whether it was mistaken or not is a different question. Uh, per, you know, Perception is more important, really, when you're talking about people's motives Perception is more important, really, than the facts, and um, and it was not irrational for Booth uh, to believe as he did about not only the circumstances but about a possible place in history uh, for somebody who um, who forgive the expression slays the tyrant in this case, and um, uh, so you can see where that comes from. It's not irrational. the The question is entirely different, though, about. Um, whether Booth had a conscience, uh, as, as I as I uh, unfolded the story day by day and hour by hour, this book it really uh, it really couldn't escape me, or I hope the reader that um, Booth was sacrificing people. He was he was misleading them. He was getting them by uh, uh, by false premises to join his plot. And then he was making sure that they could do nothing uh, to harm him by ensuring that there was uh, ample evidence against them to make sure that whether they were really in the plot or not, uh, that they would uh, that they would not be able to uh, sort of blow the whistle on him uh, because it would just look too much like that person was uh, himself uh, a part of all of this now. As I said, whether they were in the plot or not, I mean, some of these people uh, were told, Booth, Booth said, I want you to join us, and they were horrified. And then he would always say the same thing, well, you can't, you can't um, uh, betray me because you've already been implicated. And that turned around, uh, in, in my opinion anyway, that, that turned out to be probably the most important part of this story because if Booth could implicate someone, if he could make them look as if they had, in fact, taken part in the plot, um, they could not testify against him. They could not do anything. Uh, they were absolutely helpless under the law. In those days, uh, there was no no such thing as plea bargaining. You can't just go to the authorities and say, I took part in this, but I'm out of it now. Um, if a prosecutor had genuine evidence of your guilt, he had a moral and legal and ethical duty to prosecute, and defendants could not testify. That was very important, and Booth knew it, and he used it.
0: Well, let's talk about who these people are. You're suggesting that Booth organized a, a complex plot with a number of figures, and your book shows, as you just said, that, that Booth finds a way to, to weave people in and hold them in. Um, if he's just going to walk up behind the president and shoot him with a gun, why does he need all these other people? Well,. Um, uh, Two and, and, uh, answers to that. One is. The, uh, first... I'm going to interrupt myself, because I hear the background music ah, okay. uh, starting. It says we're going to take a break, and I wanted to give you a chance to give a good answer to this. Uh, and I know our listeners want to hear who, who, were, who was in the Lincoln conspiracy or the Booth conspiracy. So we'll take a short break. We'll be right back with Michael W. Kaufman, author of American Brutus, as we talk about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln on Civil War Talk Radio. How was the President of the United States left unguarded in a public place to be assassinated by John Wilkes Booth? We'll ask this and other questions of Michael Kaufman, author of American Brutus, John Wilkes Booth and the Lincoln Conspiracies, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
2: You got a small business? Well, then you know how tough it can be. You know, marketing, finding new customers, and especially just staying focused on the day-to-day details of running your business. Well, even though my business was doing okay, it wasn't where I knew it could be. I was getting a bit discouraged. Then I heard about this little book called Growing Your Business by Mark LeBlanc. Wow, I still can't figure out how such a small book could make such a big difference in my business. It only took about an hour to read, and the things I learned, well, all I can say is I'll be using Mark's ideas for a long time to come. Why? Why? Because they work. I learned how to really focus on what I need to do to attract more customers and how to be more successful by creating a plan for generating more business. I guess that's why Mark named his website SmallBusinessSuccess.com. Clever, huh? Small Business Success. That's it. If you want to be more successful with your business, and who doesn't, You should check out Mark LeBlanc's website at smallbusinesssuccess.com. You'll find Mark's books and lots of other resources for growing your business. SmallBusinessSuccess.com. World Talk
0: Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Michael W. Kaufman, author of American Brutus, John Wilkes Booth, and the Lincoln Conspiracies. We talked a little bit in our first segment about Booth, his background, the idea of playing the role of Brutus in real life, and killing the tyrant who had uh, subverted the liberty of the republic, at least in Booth's perception. And we were just discussing the question of how Booth was going about amassing a conspiracy, uh, why he needed conspirators for that matter. So, uh, Mike, what's going on here? Why, why does Booth need to get people uh, to help him, and, and who does he get and how does he get them?
1: Well, um, you know, the subtitle of the book is, is John Wilkes Booth and the Lincoln Conspiracies, and that's plural, uh, because there are several, several different levels. Uh, in the, the summer of 1864, Booth got together with two old boyhood friends, and um, uh, they started talking about the possibility of capturing Lincoln and uh, taking him uh, while he was on his way out to the soldier's home and throwing him in their carriage and taking him down to Richmond and then holding him hostage so that they could force his government to go back to a prisoner of war exchange policy, which they had uh, had, had an effect earlier in the war. Um, Nothing happened for a long time, and I sort of count that as a separate conspiracy because uh, after a couple of months of doing nothing at all, uh, Booth seems to have uh, picked up the uh, picked up the trail again, this time with an entirely different group of people, and he appears to have had um, a slightly different uh, take on things. He was telling these other people, uh, not that we're going to capture Lincoln on his way out to the soldier's home, but rather, we're going to capture him in the theater, and we're going to tie him up in a theater box and take him across the stage uh, and out the back door, and is a completely ridiculous um, idea, but all of the people who joined Booth beginning uh, at the end of December 1864 and on uh, had an entirely different idea about what they were doing than the earlier ones. They never met, the two different groups never met until a month before the assassination, and there was a major blow up about it. Um, my feeling is that Booth originally started talking when he was drunk. The three of these guys uh, in Barnum's hotel in the summer were just sort of uh, uh, kind of um, just passing the time, really, and, and, uh, and nothing came of that. But later on, when he started to think about it, when the political situation changed, Sherman had already uh, done his march to the sea, and um, uh, the, the election uh, had gone for Lincoln, which was not generally predicted in the summer of '64. Uh, any number of things had changed the fortunes of the Confederacy, and Booth then started to lay out plans to get out of Washington and into Virginia. This was uh, something the two people he'd conspired with originally had no idea how to do. They were Baltimore boys. Now he started establishing contact with people who made that trip normally uh, and who lived in southern Maryland and who knew uh, the ropes about getting things across the Potomac River. So that was, in a way, a different group entirely. And you can see why they would be uh, necessary for his plot, even if he only intended to assassinate the president, he still has to escape. He still has to get somewhere into the south. And the people of southern Maryland had for, uh, well, since the beginning of the war, had been sneaking across uh, into Confederate territory um, for various reasons, and they had a well-worn path. Uh, A lot of people had been doing this almost professionally. Uh, for years by the time Booth came down there and started scoping things out. So the answer to your question, the short answer is that uh, he needed people to um, help him uh, figure out how he was going to escape.
0: So he gets these people with him. He he gets some of them uh, also aboard with the idea of trying to kill other members of the, uh, the, the, of the federal government. And I want to sort of f- flash ahead to the actual day of the assassination uh by this time he he's given up the kidnapping plot and has uh gone to the the murder plot and he's going to have his his cohorts kill the vice president secretary of state yeah how how does he well there are a lot of questions about the actual assassination I'm, I'm sure these are questions asked frequently I've I hear them frequently and uh, uh so, one of them. Let me just start with a, a, a minuscule one. Uh, Booth learns that Lincoln's going to Ford's Theater, and when he's actually there in Ford's Theater, trying to uh, see what the president is doing in the presidential box, uh, there is a hole in the door. Yes. That he is able to peek through. Did Booth drill that hole in the door? For I believe
1: I'm sorry, yeah, I believe he did. Uh, he had um, pretty much the afternoon um, to do that and uh, to prepare other things in and around the theater uh, for for what he thought would be the assassination that night. Um, he had free run of the place, in fact, when he found out the president was going to be there. He happened to be picking up his mail. He knew the Ford family who owned the place uh, since he was a little kid, and uh, when he was traveling around the country, he would... Have his mail delivered to local theaters. When he was in Washington, uh, people would send his letters to Ford's Theater. So um, he could come and go anytime he he felt like it. When, now,
0: according to the the son, uh, was it the son or the nephew of uh, of one of the Fords? Mm-hmm. Uh, the, he the uh, I want to say it was Frank Ford. Maybe uh, always denied that uh, that Booth actually drilled the hole in the door. And, yeah. and that that his the management had put the hole in the door so that the guard could make sure Lincoln was all right without opening the door every time. Uh, have okay. you heard that, that story?
1: Yeah, that's right. It um, was a historian for the National Park Service, George Olszewski, uh was writing a book about the restoration of Ford's Theater, mm-hmm. and uh, he received a letter from the son of Harry Clay Ford, uh, who was acting manager on the night of the assassination. And he said, "My father used to blow up every time he heard about that." He said, "My father put that hole in there himself." Well, it, it's a it's a great example of how uh, choosing your sources uh, can make a lot of difference in the way you write a story. Um, this is a man who's writing oh, 99 years after the fact, a person who wasn't there, wasn't even born yet, and um, and he's 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 telling something that that's very different from what. Um, uh, was told in 1865, Harry Ford was asked a couple of times about the hole in the door, and he said, I'd never noticed it before. He said, after the assassination, I, uh, uh, I, was, I was asked repeatedly, and I said, every time. I said, you know, I, I only noticed it just before the performance that night. Uh, I didn't know where it came from. Uh, I was kind of busy at the time, didn't do, do anything about it. It just sort of passed by, uh, barely noticed. And this is what's on record in 1865. Ford testified, incidentally, that Lincoln had been to the theater plenty of times, at least 12 we know of, and he had never been guarded. Uh, In fact, uh, it was such a a vastly different world in those days that um, the whole idea of bodyguards doesn't really come up in any of the literature, in any of the testimony, in any private letters or anything else. Now, today... If you or I heard that somebody had, say, walked into the Oval Office and slapped the president, uh, we'd all say, first and foremost, well, how did he get past the Secret Service? That question didn't come up in 1865 at all, which to me is a is a a cultural indicator that it uh, it wasn't expected that Booth would have an obstacle, uh, you know, by by way of bodyguards and all that. So the whole story about Booth, um, or excuse me, that the whole story of Harry Clay Ford putting that in there himself contradicts Ford himself on the record and contradicts uh, what Ford himself said about you know, Lincoln having guards and so forth and being able to look in. When John Wilkes Booth was uh, surrounded and, and killed uh, on the 26th of April, uh, a civilian detective named Everton Conger went through Booth's pockets, and um, uh, he... Uh, brought back what he found to Washington and for some reason took them over to the office of the of the New York Tribune and showed them off to reporters. And some of the things in there included painted wood shavings. Um, I think that Booth had, had uh, uh, drilled the hole with a gimlet, and a gimlet was found in his hotel room, and that uh, the shavings were dropped into a handkerchief, which he then wrapped up and put in his pocket.
0: Okay. So, so uh, the answer is not definitive, but you you definitely would argue for Booth having been the the driller that day.
1: Yes, yes, and and again, this is this is the difference between the contemporary record on it and what somebody said many years later. Um, I I always prefer what was said at the time, mm-hmm. unless you can find a reason why somebody at that time uh, would. Lie or 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 in some way you know not know the full truth and and mislead in some way you know from that what I um, uh, what the, what makes me believe Harry Ford himself is that he didn't seem in any way defensive about it he just uh, he was he was merely asked you know uh, when did you first notice the hole in the door and uh, and that's when he that's when he told the story he didn't say at the time oh I put it in there myself for perfectly reasonable um, uh, purposes uh, he, he said I just noticed it before the before the play
0: So, and we do know that Booth at least had, had certainly thought about how he was going to go about this because when he enters the theater and the Lincolns are sitting in the the state box watching the play he does go past a uh, uh, a presidential servant who was mm-hmm. sitting at the the door to the corridor leading to the to the state box, but yeah. uh, but there's no resistance offered there. He just says, I'm the famous John Wilkes Booth. And then, well, uh, yeah, uh,
1: really nobody would have stopped Booth from going in. He, uh, he was a little surprised, I suppose, to, to see somebody sitting there, and he pulled out either an envelope or a card. Uh, nobody was really paying much attention at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, startlingly nobody really asked on the record uh, that man, uh, Charles Forbes, Nobody really went into the, the the detail and then left a record of it. But um, uh, but what happened was he uh, he seems to have come up, held out something to identify himself, and just like anybody else would have done, he said, "I'll go on in."
0: And well, if uh, you know a major movie star were meeting the president, uh, that's right. You'd probably get get reasonable access. Now, once Booth does that, he goes into the corridor. Uh, he then manages to close the door behind him and, and block it. Yes, so that yes. uh pursuit eventually won't be able to get there.
1: Enters that's the, right. There's a there's a piece of wood that he has put in there ahead of time. He is, he's planned this out so meticulously in fact that when he jumped onto the stage his hat fell off. And somebody picked it up and took it to police headquarters, it was booked in as evidence and all. There's no question his hat fell off and yet when he got out to the Navy Yard Bridge later, he was wearing a hat. And and I think he had rehearsed the jump. I believe that he had thought it out so carefully that he knew that no matter what he did, he was going to lose his hat. And he couldn't be without a hat. Men wore hats back then. They just didn't go without them. So he had thought it through to that degree. So he had a spare hat ready. And a spare hat and his Maybe. saddlebags, I guess.
0: Now, he... He goes into the, the the presidential box. He fires the gun. Uh, steps up on the the railing, the the uh, lower edge of the the opening. Uh, jumps down, as you just said, uh, losing the hat in the process. And every traditional account uh, that everybody reads says he breaks his leg in the process. But you don't think that's true.
1: Well. Um- yeah, I I don't know why um, I don't know why people get so worked up about it. I uh, put the records in the National Archives into a computer database uh, back in the '80s, and uh, every little fact got its own separate uh, row in the in the database. And when I uh, I tried to find out if I put it all in chronological order, how far back at what point did the authorities realize Booth had broken his leg when he landed on the stage? And I just took it for granted, Uh, like everybody else, I guess, that that he limped across the stage. Well, um, nobody saw that. Nobody reported anything of the kind. Uh, In fact, um, everything that the eyewitnesses uh, for the next 12 days were saying was that uh, Booth went gliding in a theatrical way, very graceful, sort of, you know, he's here now and he's here uh, a second later. Uh, no indication that, that he um, uh, was limping. He got out uh, the back door to the theater, into the alley, where somebody had a horse waiting for him. And he put one foot in the stirrup and the other foot is up in the, up in the air. And the horse pulled out from under him and now he's got all the weight of his body and the, the added pressure of trying to twist himself and throw his weight over the horse. Uh, you mount with the left side, so that was his left leg. That's the one that was supposed to be broken. Um, he didn't seem to have any difficulty doing that. He got out to um, the Navy Yard Bridge, and the man out there said, well, I let him out. I didn't know about the assassination. And, uh, more importantly for, for my purpose, Um, he didn't seem agitated there didn't seem to be anything wrong and yet from the moment Booth showed up at Mary Surratt's tavern 12 miles down the road his voice is cracked in pain he said my horse rolled over on me and I broke my leg Uh, and and he tells that story throughout his escape uh, in Maryland and he even tells it to people who know exactly who he is and what he's done but later on when authorities uh, started investigating the horses, they found that Booth and David Harold, one of the other conspirators who caught up with Booth outside the city, they had switched horses. Harold was riding a very gentle horse, something uh, called a single footed pacer that did not bounce up and down. It was very easy to ride. And that's the horse Booth was riding from then on. Not only had they switched horses, but the horse that Booth rode out of Washington had a badly swollen left shoulder and a big gash on its left front leg. So that horse had clearly tripped and hurt itself, and it was lame uh, from uh, from a certain point in the escape uh, on down. So what people have done is looked at Booth's diary, in which he starts, he, you know, he's, he's out, he's very disillusioned, he's been out in the woods, he's been... You know, feeling sort of kicked around. And he says, You know, I acted boldly and not as the papers say. And then he starts going on about how, you know, great chances he took and how dangerous it was and all of that. And in this little passage, uh, he says, In jumping broke my leg. And although nothing else he said there was true in that passage, that's the one part of his diary entry that people have believed over the years. And it was actually very slow to catch on, but it's become one of the great uh, pieces of American folklore.
0: Is is it possible he meant in in his horse jumping over an obstacle that he broke his leg?
1: He could have meant that. He could have, but by the time anybody saw the diary, Booth was dead.
0: So we won't know exactly. Well, we're going to take another short break, and when we come back, we'll... Uh, Ask the question people ask, no matter how many times you tell them what really happened. Uh, And we'll ask that question of our guest, Michael W. Kaufman, author of American Brutus, when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Booth had his conspirators who attempted to assassinate the entire uh, leadership of the federal government, but that's not enough conspiracy for some people. Other, there are those who insist it must have been Edwin Stanton behind the whole thing. We'll ask our guest, Michael W. Kaufman, about this Lincoln conspiracy when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: It's the one-level playing field in business, the Internet. It's where an artisan working out of a small shop can look bigger than a multinational corporation. But to achieve this level of visibility, your company's website needs a developer who knows the net and how to make it work. Your company needs Appseo. Appseo's success comes from producing websites that reflect the attitudes and uniqueness of their respective organizations. Make a great first impression on the web. Choose Appseo, A-P-S-Y-O. For more info, visit www.appseo.com.
0: You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Michael W. Kaufman, author of American Brutus, John Wilkes Booth, and the Lincoln Conspiracies. We talked about Booth's conspiracy to uh, the Gather co, co-conspirators to assassinate the heads of the uh, of the federal government in April 1865, and a little bit about uh, Booth's own actions, including his escape uh, afterwards. There are so many questions about the Lincoln uh, assassination that come up all the time. Uh, they go to incredible levels of detail. Sometime I've read articles that debate was it. Peanut John Burrows or Cough Drop Joe Ratto, who actually held Boots' horse uh, outside Ford's Theater that night. Uh, and Mike, I'm not going to ask you that question because, <laughs> frankly, I don't care. Uh, but questions people do ask all the time that that uh, you and I know the answer to, yet yet the question won't die, uh, is the one about the the big conspiracy. The uh, the the government was behind it all. Uh, Edwin Stanton, Secretary of War, secretly plotted to have Lincoln killed. Let me ask you first: Where does that story come from to begin with?
1: Well, uh, the story actually began with uh, Otto Eisenschimmel, uh, who he was he was a chemist and he wrote a book that was published in 1937. It was called "Why Was Lincoln Murdered," and the the title is actually very apt for the book because. Uh, it's not an answer, it's a question. And throughout the book, uh, Schimmel asks a lot of leading questions. Uh, the problem I have with his approach is that there's a premise behind each question, and the premise is always faulty. When he says, uh, why, for example, were all the bridges out of Washington blocked off that night except for the one Booth took? Why did all of the telegraph lines out of Washington shut down mysteriously that night? You know, he's he's assuming that those are true uh, points, and they're not, uh, because Eisenschimmel actually used sources that contradict those premises. When he said uh, that, that all the bridges out of Washington but one were closed, he's actually referring also to the the original statement by the sergeant that Booth encountered at the Navy Yard Bridge. And that statement says, I told Booth I had orders not to let anyone cross after 9 o'clock. So I guess the government did all it could to make sure that that bridge was closed as well. And I guess I don't know why Schimmel overlooked that, but uh, Sergeant Silas Cobb, uh, that, that man who let booth pass is uh, very I, I'm presuming he was very embarrassed about this and he said quite, quite honestly, I thought the war was over. you know I, I don't know why um, uh, Cobb should be blamed necessarily for having what they called field discretion at the time. He thought the war was over. He had not heard about any uh, danger from out from, from within the city, from people passing out. He wasn't willing to let anyone go from outside the city in, but, you know, he, he violated his orders, technically speaking, but, you know, he's just trying to use his common sense. Now, that was one point. Another point that is very uh, very big in the Eisenschimmel uh, thesis was that um, all of the telegraph lines were shut down that night. And, in fact, only one line was shut down, uh, a man who ran the people's line, his name was William Heiss, Uh, he did not want his line, which went directly to Baltimore, to be used by the conspirators as a signal. It was a commercial line. It shut down at 5 o'clock in the evening or afternoon, and, and he opened the door to his office, went in there, and shorted out the line. Somebody later tried to use it, found that it wasn't working, and then this is what started the whole thing. Eisenschimmel himself used the dispatches that Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, sent out to New York that night. And every one of those things was published in the papers, the New York papers, on April 15th. And right at the top, all along the right column of the front page, it said, by telegraph, 1130, by telegraph, 1145, by telegraph. I mean, you know, of course, the telegraph lines out of Washington must have been working or the or the news wouldn't have gotten out.
0: So Ades Schimmel is is using these bits and fragments of evidence to create uh, a story where none exists. But even though uh, historians have have disproved the thesis uh, and and written a number of books over the years, from George Bryan to uh, uh, William Hanchett to others, that that show that, that of course, there's nothing to this, uh, the story just won't die. Well,
1: that's right. People love a mystery and uh, I was actually a little self-conscious about um, uh, trying to appear that I had all the answers because you know people, readers, don't really like that. They want you, they want to have something left to to chew on, something to talk about, and uh, and it's those open questions that really grab people and pull them into this story. When um, when Eisenshimmel came out with this. Uh, people just went crazy. It was a bestseller. It did extremely well. He had a follow-up to it later on. And any time somebody made an effort to stomp it out later, um, well, let's just say they didn't do as well uh, in in book sales. Uh, and And I think that's the key. I think that's why people are interested in the Kennedy assassination and the Lincoln assassination, but not necessarily Garfield and McKinley because, In both of those cases, you had somebody standing right there with a gun in his hand, and there was not that much mystery
0: left. You know, I'm sorry to hear that, because I have this big uh, publication. I'm planning the coincidences between the Garfield and McKinley assassination. Really? (laughs) I'm I'm hoping I can make a million dollars but it looks like it's just not going to fly. Oh um, no. Oh well, it was worth a try. Um let me run by some some uh quick questions they they, they don't have quick answers. Um but these are They're questions Not with
1: me have, especially. Yeah.
0: Well, I'll, I'll I'll challenge you uh, give me the short version. Um okay. this will be like the McLaughlin group uh, for listeners who remember uh that show if it's I, I assume it's gone now. Um medical care. Uh, did the doctors save um, try to save Lincoln or did they kill him that night?
1: Oh, they, they did their best, and uh, nobody at the time second-guessed. Nobody up until uh, uh, recent years uh, second-guessed what the doctors did. They had very good feedback from the, 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 the vital signs when they kind of picked at the scab. They They did get results. The blood flow started, and the pressure was eased off the president's brain. That's what they looked for at the time, and that's that's what doctors, by and large, say today would have been the right thing. Abraham Lincoln survived nine hours with a, a severe trauma to the brain, and that's, that's a miracle even by modern standards.
0: So modern science couldn't have done anything more to save him?
1: Well, I, I'm not a doctor, but I, I, I get the impression that there's, uh, that there's no way any person could survive something like that except for the occasional fluke. Uh,
0: next question, Dr. Mudd, guilty?
1: No, I don't think so. And uh, the reason is that uh, uh, if you look at, at, uh, at, at all of the evidence in Mudd's case, uh, as it developed, you, you go day by day and so on, um, you, you really find that what Booth is doing um, is um, strongly indicative of, of a distrust of Mudd. From the day they met, they were trying to stiff-arm each other, hold each other off at some distance, and that the evidence against Mudd is not evidence of what Mudd did, but evidence of what uh, Booth did to him. And if you and, and, and that's the dividing line with me. It's a little different from Mary Surratt, but when, um, uh, when, you, when you look at the uh, evidence in Mudd's case, uh, try to figure out exactly what is real evidence and what is uh, subsequently kind of made up. There's a lot of that out there. There's a lot of people... Saying things uh, about the Dr. Mudd case that are assumptions and they're not really true. Uh, for example, he's—we always hear that he said he had never set, met Booth before. That's not true. He didn't. He wasn't even asked about it. Uh, we hear that he um, that he knew that this was Booth and didn't uh, didn't um, uh, report it to authorities. And I say, if you look minute by minute at, at his circumstances, he didn't put things together in his mind until. Uh, until the afternoon when Booth was at his house. Nobody in his right mind uh, who knows the president's killer is at his house is going to get up and casually go into town, do some shopping, do a little of this and talk about uh, the price of lumber with his uh, neighbors, um, leaving his wife and four little kids alone with a fugitive. Nobody's going to do that. And Dr. Mudd's defense, because he was unable, uh, like all defendants at the time, because he was unable to tell his side of the story, um, his, his defense kept getting shot down when they tried to present it. There is uh, a large body of records in the archives uh, relating, in, in the State Department, believe it or not, uh, relating to what Mudd's story would have been. These are all things under oath. These are all things that the Mudd family and friends uh, tried petitioning for Dr. Mudd's pardon. This is where they told their side of the story, and this has never been in print anywhere. Uh, and I think it's a shame, because I, at the very least, you can present both sides uh, of the of the story, and if you don't believe one side, at least explain why.
0: Well, I mean, we we do know that Booth shows up at Mudd's house in in the middle of the night or early in the morning, 4 a.m. Right. Uh, Mudd treats his injured leg and uh, allows him and David Harold to s- spend the rest of the night. And then, as you say, the next day, Mud go- goes to town. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will confess a certain amount of in- incredulity that he doesn't know that that's John Wilkes Booth, who, has, as you point out, he has met before, yes. and who was very famous. Um, but it's also a worthwhile point that one, one ought to look at both sides uh, um, there, there are other historians, Ed Steers, for example, who would certainly argue Booth, uh, that, that Mudd was guilty. Um, but I'm going to keep moving with the questions. Uh, ages or angels? What did Stanton say?
1: I don't think he said either one.
0: Um, At the moment of Lincoln's death, what would <laughs> right happened?
1: Um, uh, if, if you trace back the story, it seems to have originated or the, uh, it seems to have appeared in print the first time in 1890. Um, and because people were on the day of Lincoln's death, on that morning, people were writing down so carefully, so meticulously, every little detail about what happened, his pulse rate and everything else, and and this was completely left out of all the accounts and didn't show up again for well it didn't show up at all for 25 years. I just I tend to think that it was something that came up later and and it sounded nice and poetic and and sure why not? It's a great story. Um, but I, it would be ages. Certainly, it was a very, it's uh, a very strange um, misquote to say angels. And uh, gosh, I mean, uh,
0: I, I don't. That, doesn't it appear? It, it's carved on the Lincoln Tomb, which that's right. Was compl- yeah. that was completed before twenty five years?
1: No, it wasn't. It, it was nineteen oh one, and um, when uh, Nicolai and Hay uh, completed their their huge uh, ten volume uh, set on. Uh, on abraham lincoln's life i believe it was in there uh... in 1890 Mm -hmm. and uh... i don't i don't recall seeing it anywhere else And i've looked i I don't recall seeing it anywhere before that but the Mm -hmm. the fact to me that it didn't it didn't show up right then and there i even found uh... and used a lot in my book i even found the uh... notebook of one of the doctors dr charles taft Mm -hmm. who wrote down everything he could think of uh... as soon as he could get home after lincoln's death and um, and he didn't mention it. No, none of the newspapers, nobody else did, and uh, it just doesn't show up. So, uh, the you know that they that they put it on Lincoln's tomb. I think um, uh, it's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's a beautiful sentiment. Um, I just don't think it came from Edwin Stanton. That's all.
0: Well, we'll have to close on that note. There are so many other fascinating questions involved here, uh, which we don't have time to go over today. But listeners, if, if you are only going to read one book on the Lincoln assassination, uh, American Brutus, John Booth and the Lincoln Conspiracies by Michael W. Kaufman is the one book uh, you ought to read. It's, it's, it's the place to start. Uh, William Hansford's Lincoln Murder Conspiracies is a wonderful book on the historiography uh, that follows. But uh, but this, this will give you uh, all the questions and many of the answers, Uh, as to what happened uh, on that night and in the days afterwards and in the life of of Booth beforehand. Uh, And it's an extraordinary book, really, a a fascinating page-turner that uh, everybody uh, I know will enjoy. Well, Mike, thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a great honor. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. video.